The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, turn to someone next to you and say, God is sanctifying you. You were looking at me when you said that. You're supposed to look at Craig. Now, now turn back to the other person next to you and say, I know. Okay. Well, you will know. You'll know by the end of this teaching. How are you guys? Man, I love being in here. This is such a cool place to hang out on Wednesday night, isn't it? Worship the Lord, hear the word. Man, it's great. There is coffee in the back if anybody wants some coffee. Um, Good stuff. All right. You guys excited for the book of Numbers? Yeah? Does everyone have a blue sheet? Sounds like a DMV thing, doesn't it? Everyone go get a blue sheet, fill it out, get in line. Um, If you don't have a blue sheet... Uh, Mary has some in the back where you can raise your hand or someone can bring them to you. Um, if you need a pen, there's, oh, there's some up here too. And if you need a pen, there's pens up here also. We're providing everything for you. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me before we teach, um, before I teach. So just take 20 seconds and before I pray and before I start, would you guys just, um, invite God to speak to your heart tonight, um, and there's a story in Numbers, uh, as we'll hear, about um, God speaking through a donkey. And so um, we're going to, that's prophetic. It's prophetic tonight. Um, so pray that that would happen. Um, but yeah, if you guys would take 20 seconds, pray for me, and then uh, that, really pray that God would speak to you um, tonight, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father in heaven, each of us are sitting tonight uh, with an infinite list of things we could praise you for. God, your grace has been manifested in our lives in so many ways. Lord, we do not have the lives we deserve. And uh, tonight, God, if you could unfold and unpack to us a little bit more of the, the beauty and the complexity of that grace, Lord, that we would worship you. And uh, I just pray tonight, God, that the book of Numbers would be made clear to us, that it would be a treasure, God, moving forward, something that we can always hold dear and remember, God, of how you are working in us. And uh, Holy Spirit, just be here, I pray, and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys got the book of Numbers? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. While you're flipping there, let me give you a little bit of a heads up on what we're doing in case you haven't been to one of these yet. Um, We're four weeks into a new series called Old Testament Overview. It's up on the screen there. Um, Basically what we're doing is we really want to um, unpack to you guys without having to take you know, 10 years to do it, the entirety of of the Old Testament. And we're doing that really because we value the Old Testament As I say every week, if you haven't noticed, about two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament. It's a lot of Bible in there, and there's a lot of Bible in there that a lot of people don't like to read because they don't understand it, and they don't get it, and and some of it can be tricky. Um, So really, we are getting into the Old Testament because it's valuable, and as I've said before, the Old Testament really is the hammer that drives sort of the stake, if you will, of grace into the depths of our heart. When you get the weight 
of, of, of what happened with God's people in the Old Testament. The truths of the New Testament come alive in just a whole new way. So that's why we're studying the Old Testament. And we're studying it in the way that we're studying it because I was just having a conversation with um, a couple friends before this. What happens sometimes when you, when, you, when you spend too much time on one verse or one chapter is you kind of get in the weeds. You guys ever done that? I mean, like if you're doing a sermon series on Exodus and it takes you three years and you have such a, a, a twisted web of teachings and things that have happened in Exodus, you don't even remember what the whole book was about. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to really get out of the weeds, get up to a 30,000 foot view and give you guys sort of, this is the whole story of the book. So because of that, I'm not going to get to every story in these books. So if I, if I forget your favorite story, don't, um, you know, don't be mad. Um, we're only going to be able to get to some of these things, but what we want to give you is really kind of a, um, an overview Old Testament overview of each of these books. Does that make sense? Everybody in? Okay, book of Numbers. You know what I love so much about God's work of salvation is the complexity of it. Um, God's work of salvation is not two-dimensional. It's not one-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. Okay, it's not something that you just look at head-on. It's something that you want to look at from each side because every side holds another level of complexity. Uh, I, I'm from Siskiyou County, so uh, we are right in line of Mount Shasta. You guys know Mount Shasta. That's our neighboring mountain, okay? And, and, and you, you know, we would see Mount Shasta every day, and it was beautiful, and it was magnanimous, and we'd wake up to seeing Mount Shasta. And the funny thing is, though, is when you drive um, to the city of Mount Shasta, it looks like a different mountain. And then you drive over towards Redding or you go back around to the backside of Mount Shasta to McLeod and all of a sudden it looks like an entirely different mountain. There's so much complexity to that mountain because it's huge and you have to really examine it from every angle to get it. This is the truth about salvation. This work of salvation that God does for us, it's three-dimensional, uh, it's complex. It's not something that you can just stare at head on and to fully appreciate it, you really need to spend a lot of time looking at the different angles of it and the progression of it. So salvation is really a progression. Okay, I'm gonna write on this board again, and if you can't see it, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll try to write big. Um, but, but basically, salvation is a, is a progression. And when we've, seen, we've seen this progression so far in the Pentateuch. Can anyone remember what the Pentateuch means? Book of five, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And right now, we're in this book of five. And we really have to take it like it's one book, because it really is. It's one story, and we can't really just pull everything out. We have to leave it sort of as one narrative. So in this narrative, we've seen multiple views of the salvation of God because it's three-dimensional, okay? Um, in, in, the, in the salvation of God, we first started off in seeing in Genesis, um, the fall of man. Was, Genesis was the book of beginnings, the beginning of sin, this disconnect between God and between man. And then in Exodus was the book of slavery and redemption, if you guys remember that. So in the book of Slavery and Redemption, we talked about sort of the first facet or the first uh, level, if you will, of, of God, how God works in salvation. And that was something called justification. You might write that down because that's going to be an important word we're going to come back to. I wrote it really small. <laughs> I, I, I can't write big. I can't write at all. Um, justification, okay? This is, yeah, yeah, pull out your opera glasses. Um, just know that blue blob is justification. Um, so, uh, justification. Okay, what is justification? Justification uh, is not just a big theology word. It actually is, is a tip of an iceberg. It represents a huge truth of salvation. Justification means that God 
imputed to you righteousness and took your sin okay, on the cross. This is where God changed your position um, in regards to God's holiness. So you're no longer uh, someone that God's wrath is abiding on. Now, because of Jesus and justification, you have been, you've heard it before, just as if you've never sinned. You are justified. You are positionally pure and clean before God. That is the first facet or the first step in what happens in the salvation process. Now, that was pictured, if you remember, in Exodus. Okay, they were slaves, just like we're slaves to sin. And God came in and freed them from that slavery positionally. They were no longer slaves. They were free people. And then they moved out into the wilderness. So in justification, we saw that in the book of Exodus. Okay? And then we saw another facet of justification last week when we looked at the book of Leviticus, which was the book of, do you guys remember? Holiness. The book of holiness, okay? And in, 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 in the book of holiness, God was basically saying that not only do you need to be justified um, just as if you've never sinned, but also you cannot live accordingly to the law. So it's, it's one thing if someone just comes and pays your debt. But if they pay your debt, at the end of the day, you're still probably a really bad budgeter, okay? So God says, I'm not only just gonna pay your debt, I'm also going to give you my budgeting skills, so to speak. I'm going to give you my perfect life, and I'm going to impute that perfect life to you. So in Leviticus, we saw that, that God says, I don't just pay for your sins, but I'm also giving you my life that I lived through the law perfectly. That's another facet of justification, okay? So justification is where we start out as Christians, right? Okay, you get saved, you're justified. But then up here, see if I can write bigger this time. Stage fright on writing. Um, up here is where we're headed. This well, right? Glorification, okay? Glorification. Um, glorification is, is the goal. Glorification is heaven. It's when God gives us a new body. It's when uh, we, we, we are rid finally of sin's presence, when we, we sit in God's presence for, forever, okay? So we, we're justified when we get saved. In heaven, we will be glorified. But what about all this, right there, okay? This is where we're living right now, okay? We've been justified. We're not sinful anymore, okay? Our, our position of sin is, is gone, paid for. Every sin that you ever have, will, are committing has been paid for, justified. Heaven is the goal, which is where we're going, glorified. But what is this big snowstorm right here? Sanctification. Okay, this is sanctification. I don't know why all these words have Asian on the end, but they do, and it rhymes, so it's good. Sanctification. Now, this is important in regards to Numbers, the book of Numbers, because Israel's been set free from slavery, and they're headed to the promised land, okay? Just like we have been set free from slavery, and we're headed to heaven. But before they can get to the promised land, there's something they have to go through. And this is this marvelous picture of sanctification. There's something that has to happen in them, something that God needs to work in them before they're ready to go into the promised land, before they're ready for glorification. So tonight, we're gonna talk about this subject of sanctification, okay? And hopefully you'll walk out of your film like you have a little bit of a better understanding of what it is. So what is sanctification? It's the first question on your sheet if you wanna fill this out. Um, Westminster's Shorter Catechism uh, defines it like this. Sanctification 
is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, okay? So really what I wanna highlight in there for you guys is this idea of the whole man being renewed, okay? So even though we've been justified and positionally we stand before God righteous, there's no sin that can be laid to blame at our feet. Even though that's true, we have not yet been made whole. Okay? We've not yet been made whole. And sanctified is the process of God making us whole, as the catechism says. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about holiness. God wants for his people to be holy and to be set apart. And if you remember the definition that we gave of holiness, it was wholeness. God wants you to be complete, which sort of alludes to the fact that we are not complete right now. So even though positionally we're justified, I'm still not a completed work. I'm unfinished. Okay? I'm unfinished. God's desire is for wholeness to happen in me. Here's an easy way to think of sanctification. Sanctification is like renovation. Okay? You buy the house. The house is yours. The deed is yours. But the place is thrashed, right? Now, you're going to spend some time. You're going to put a nice backsplash on. You're going to replace the countertops. You're going to put new carpet in. You're going to paint the walls. You're going to suit that place and make it your home where you feel comfortable. But just because you own the title deed, just because it's paid for, doesn't mean it's renovated yet. So as Christians, God buys us with his blood, justifies us, purchases our ticket to heaven, but we're still not renovated. And God needs to do some work. It needs to do some renovation. The same was true for Israel. He wants their wholeness, just like he wants our wholeness. In Romans 12, 2, Paul talks about this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's this idea of transformation, renovation. God has purchased you. You're justified, but now he's going to do some work in you. Why? Because he loves you too much to let you stay as a wreck. That is sanctification. Why do we need to be sanctified? Well, Paul says it in Romans 7, 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh. I am of the flesh, pardon me, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Very king, I hate. Uh, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's enough of that one. So what Paul is saying is, I don't understand. Even though I'm saved, even though I'm justified, even though God has purchased me, I still don't do what I want to do. There's this turmoil. Have you guys experienced this as Christians? Okay, you're saved, you raised your hand, you prayed the prayer, you got baptized, you, you threw your pine cone in the fire, and then a week later, you're, you're back on drugs. Or a week later, you're back into that sin. Or a week later, you're, 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 you're angry or yelling at your wife or screaming at your kids and you say, I don't understand why, I, I, why is it that I'm, I'm justified but I'm not yet glorified. I'm still feeling and experiencing the presence of sin. It's because sanctification has not yet been worked out in you. This renovation needs to happen and God is gonna do that. On your sheets, I ask the question, what is the difference between justification and sanctification? Okay, what's the difference between this and this? And this is important to clarify because they're very different. In justification, 
we are freed from sin's penalty. Do we have the slide for this on that picture? If we could throw this up. This is helpful, okay? In justification, you can take, take a look at this. We are freed from sin's penalty, okay? There's no more penalty for sin and we've been justified. In glorification, we will be saved from the presence of sin. What that means is until heaven, guess what? We're dealing with sin for the rest of this time on earth until glorification. In sanctification, though, we are being freed from the power of sin. That means that God, day after day and moment after moment and struggle after struggle, as we'll see, is freeing you from the grip and the power of sin. So the difference between the two is this. J.C. Ryle, he says it very clearly. He says, justification gives us our title to heaven and boldness to enter in. But sanctification gives us our fitness for heaven and prepares us to enjoy it when we dwell there. In other words, sanctification is this preparation process. It's making us ready for heaven, to spend forever with God in eternity. He goes on, he says, justification has special reference to our persons or standing in God's sight and our deliverance from guilt. But sanctification has special reference to our nature and the moral renewal of our hearts. You see the difference there? The difference is justification has nothing really to do with me. God did it all for me. God says, you are justified by faith alone, simply because you believe. But now that you are justified, let's get to work. Okay? And listen, sanctification is not justification. We don't do things for God to earn justification. It's already purchased. It's done. It's finished. Now, the theme of numbers you want to write this down in your, in your handout, the theme of numbers is sanctification. It's this beautiful, wonderful picture of what God does in the life of a Christian through the process of sanctification. And we're going to use this book to unpack sort of what that looks like. Because guess what? That's where we're all living right now. We are not yet glorified. We are justified if we've received Christ by faith. But we are all being sanctified. And we want to learn what that looks like. And Numbers is a fantastic book to try to understand that better. You see, here's the thing. Israel, if you remember from the book of Exodus, Israel spent uh, the majority of their lives, at least the generation that we're reading about right now. Remember, Joseph traveled into the south, became a mighty man in Egypt. Egypt was not God's land. Egypt is a picture of what? The world, okay? Egypt is a picture of the world. They traveled south, and then his brothers, because of famine, his brothers traveled south as well, and they, they took up residency in Egypt, not the promised land, not God's land, but Egypt. And they multiplied greatly there, and they became a mighty, mighty people group. They weren't a nation yet, but they were a mighty people group, okay? And so that's where they lived. That's where they grew up. That's where they got their education, or their understanding. That's where they got their worldview. That's where they got their thought process was in the world, just like we did, right? They spent the majority of their time up until this point where God freed them. They spent the majority of their time being raised by the world. And because of that, they picked up a lot of tendencies from the world. They thought like the world. They acted like the world. They worshiped like the world. That's why God, that's why Moses comes down the hill and they're worshiping a golden calf, because they've been in the world. They're saturated by the world's thinking and the world's worldview. 
okay? And so what God has to do before they can go into the promised land, before he can establish them as a nation, is he needs to get rid of this old thinking. This Egyptian worldly mindset has got to go. And God is going to deal with it through sanctification, okay? A picture of sanctification for the believer. So here's the outline for the book. If you guys want to jot it down, um, we're just going to look at three things, and we're going to use numbers to illustrate each of these. We're going to look at three avenues that God uses to sanctify you and me, okay? Three avenues. The first one, you guys ready for more Asian words? (laughs) I got a bunch of them. Uh, The first one is regeneration. Regeneration, and that's in chapters 1 through 10. The second one, and this is the primary one, is tribulation. And that's chapters 11 through 19, 26 through 36. And then the third one is preservation. These are the three things that we're going to see God do to sanctify his people in the book of Numbers. So, let's start with the first one. Regeneration. In chapters 1 through 10 of the book of Numbers, uh, it's sort of kind of the yawner section of the book. Okay, I'll be honest, uh, if you're, if you're going to preach the book, you probably just want to start on chapter 11, because um, it, it's kind of like, oh, this is, this is kind of boring. Um, but it's very necessary, and it's, it's a very clear picture of something, as I'll show you. What chapters 1 through 10 are of the book of Numbers is God actually coming in and rearranging Israel. Now, if you remember up into this time, they've been at Mount Sinai for a while. Okay, they've been camped there. God spoke to Moses, given them the commandments. They have all of these plans for this tabernacle. They've actually put the tabernacle together now. God's established the priesthood. Um, he's, he's starting to take them from being this sort of ragtag people group that's wandering out in the wilderness to actually being like a, a nation, okay, with some order and some civility and some law. And he says, this is how I want you to live, and this is how I want you to eat, and this is how I want you to act, and this is the the pecking order, and this is who your leadership is going to be, and this is how you're going to live as a people. And that's what the book of Leviticus largely was, and Exodus, was God organizing them. We have some more organizing that he wants to do before he sends them out of Mount Sinai and onto the promised land, okay? He has some more organizing that he wants to do. So the first thing he does in chapters 1 through 10 is he rearranges Israel. He says, look, I want you to camp in a specific way. And he, the way that he says he wants them to camp is really cool. If I could draw a picture of it, I could, but I won't. Um, if, if I could draw a picture of it, basically, he, he tells them, I want the tabernacle in the center of your camp with the priesthood, the Levites, closest to the presence of God, right? Because that was their reward for their obedience. They got to be the ministers to the Lord. And then out from there, you're to camp facing the tabernacle. And when you look at it, it makes the shape of a cross, which is really cool, okay? Uh, But the point is, is God says, I want you camped in such a way that my presence is the point. I want you camped in such a way that you never forget, I'm the middle, I'm the center, I'm the focus. So he's rearranging them, and that's a lot of what Numbers uh, chapter one through 10 is. And then also, he says, when you march, and you will march, when you guys pull up your roots or pull up your stakes and travel on to the next place, I want you to travel in such a way where the Ark of the Covenant leads the way, okay? To signify that God is your leader. God is at the center of your camp and God is the leader of your party. And everything about the way God sets them up in Numbers chapter one through 10 is mobility, okay? God's not like, hey, this is home. 
Go ahead, sink roots, you know, uh, put, put your kids in school, uh, you know, like buy a house. Like that's not what he's doing here. He's like, you know, you are a mobile people. I have not established you yet. You're not here yet. You're not in the promised land yet. And so I don't want you living like you're anything but mobile. So the way that he arranges them is so that at any moment when the cloud lifts, they're packed up and they're gone. He even tells them, make two uh, trumpets so that you can signify loudly and clearly and quickly to all of the people when it's time to go and it's time to be on mission. They're pilgrims. They're not staying there. It's not their point to stay there. It's not their role. And the other thing that God does in in Numbers chapters 1 through 10 is he also prepares them because he's sending them out on a mission. And he prepares them a few different ways. He tells them, take a census of Israel's warriors. Okay, figure out your strengths. Figure out who you have to battle for you, excluding the, the, the Levites, of course. So God's preparing them for battle because they are going to have battles. He further prepares the priesthood with more specificity. Um, and then they, they celebrate the Passover. Uh, they they uh, consecrate the tabernacle. And then they're ready to go. Okay, so that's chapters 1 through 10. It's God really preparing preparing them for their journey. Now, what is taking place here is exactly what God does at the start of our salvation process, okay? God does a couple things when we first get saved. And not only does he justify us, but he also, not only does he sanctify us, but he also, he regenerates us, okay? And what that means is that you are reborn, Okay, to be regenerate or to or regeneration is to be reborn. Okay, and, and that's that's what God is doing with numbers. Before before you're going off to be on mission, I need to do some work in you. Now, when you get saved and justified, okay, your sins are paid, but the problem is that you're still you, right? And, and your passions are still for you, and your passions are still for the world. And the beginning step of sanctification is that God says, "I need you to be reborn," because this whole thing. There's nothing here I can use. You know, this, this, this whole, this, this entirety of your heart that was passed down to you through Adam, it's got to go. You need a new heart. And I'm going to write my law on that heart so that the depths and the core of your desires represent me. So just like God rearranges the camp uh, of Israel, God, for us, before we go off into the wilderness and before we go off to, to seek out glorification, he says, I'm going to rearrange some things in your heart. And I'm going to put myself at the center of your heart. That's what regeneration is. Regeneration is new birth, okay? So if, if sanctification is growing up, regeneration is birth. And before you grow up, you have to what? You have to, you have to be born. Okay, that's not rocket science, okay? Um, if sanctification is growing up, okay, which it is, or renovation, regeneration, okay, is the DNA strand that you grow from. It's the seed that the entirety of the tree grows out of. God says, I am going to give you a newness of life, and within that newness of life, everything that you need is there. And then sanctification is just the unpacking of what God has planted in you. I mean, have you thought about that with DNA? It's like everything about you, (laughs) and and largely, is there. And and then when you grow up, it, it just starts to happen, these plans, these programming. That's what, what regeneration is. God says you're reborn, and now you get to grow, grow up, which is really cool. He arranges us in such a way that Christ is at the center of our hearts. 
And one, I'll say this really quick too, one really important thing about regeneration, and, and we'll come back to this. One really important thing about regeneration is that God rearranges the deepest parts of your heart. Not always the surface parts. Because you might get saved and, man, I still really want get, to go, go get loaded. Or you might get saved and say, man, I really still want to just go, go get drunk. Or, man, you get, might get saved and you still really have this, this, this problem and why is it not going away? Okay, well, God's going to work on that. But the deepest parts of your heart, the parts that you actually don't even know what's down there, God has rearranged those in the process of regeneration when you're reborn. And that's exciting, and we'll get to why in a minute. So he equips you for a mission. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, here they are in chapter 10. They're arranged, they're prepared, they're eager, um, they're ready to go in the promised land. It's an 11-day walk to the promised land from where they are. Can you believe that? If any of you guys know the story... It's crazy. Uh, 11 days, okay? They're ready. They're prepared. They're ready to go be a nation. They're going to walk right into the promised land and claim their territory because God has given it to them, and here we go. They're pumps. It's not exactly what happens, is it? It's not exactly what happens. There's actually 40 years that happens between them being ready and set apart and called and organized and, and sprinkled and everything. And them actually getting into the promised land is, is a huge, huge chunk of story that happens in between there. And that's kind of what happens with us. <laughs> you know, we, we, we're saved, and we're excited, and we're like, man, we're just going to go. We're just going to go be on mission. We're going to be missionaries, or we're going to go serve, or I'm going to just be like the most radical Christian ever, and I got my Christian music, and I got my Bible, and we're just, I'm going to go. Any guys ever feel like that when you first got saved? <laughs> and then what happened? Life happened and here you are maybe 5 10 20 30 40 50 years later and you're like man that was one heck of a wilderness <laughs> i'm still trying to get through it you know i mean that's the reality of what these guys are facing with me really quick go to malachi chapter 3 verses 2 through 3 so we talked about sanct- sanctification through regeneration now we're going to talk about sanctification through tribulation okay Sanctification through tribulation. And unfortunately, this is probably one of the most primary ways that God sanctifies us, is through tribulation. Here's what Malachi 3, 2 through 3 says. It's also on the screen. For the Lord is like a refiner's fire. Everybody say refiner's fire. Refiner's fire. Good job, you guys are on it. And like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. That's, we learned about them last week. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Okay, why am I taking you to this scripture in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament? Because there's something you need to understand about how God works. You see, God, as is described by himself through this prophet, Malachi, God is a refiner. Okay, and I did some studying about refining of gold. Here's what I learned. In order for gold to be melted and refined, it has to be heated up to um, just about 2,000 degrees. Okay, that's pretty hot. Okay, 2,000 degrees. And when it's heated up to about 2,000 degrees, what happens is impurities and all of these other types of things, alloys and other minerals and things that you don't really want in your gold, you want it to be pure, begin to rise to the surface and then you separate them out. What also happens at that point is gold becomes moldable. So you can reshape it and turn it into whatever you want. Okay? This is God's process largely for sanctification. He is a refiner. 
He refines us. And what is the key component to, ref, to, to being refined? Heat. Lots and lots of heat. Okay, gold does not get refined by sitting on a couch and watching Judge Judy. Does anybody watch that show anymore? That used to be a cool show. Um, nobody, that doesn't happen. You get refined through heat and lots and lots and lots of heat. And this, in the book of Numbers, is how God is going to refine Israel to the point where they are ready to go in to the promised land. And there's four ways that he does this. The first way in Numbers is, is temptation. He does this in temptation. And if you guys remember, in, in Jesus, he, he goes and he gets baptized, which is a picture of regeneration, born again. He gets baptized, and what's the first thing that he has to go do? He has to go be tempted. He goes right into the wilderness to be tempted. You know? It's no mistake. The first thing that happens typically when you get saved, you get reborn, you get justified, and your sanctification process starts, and you're a freshman sanctifie, okay, is you get tempted. And God refines you through temptation. Now, you get tempted all through your sanctification process. Look at Numbers 11, 4 through 6. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also went wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. They're complaining again. We remember the fish we ate at Egypt that cost nothing and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and the cheeseburgers and the quesadillas and barbecue sauce. And, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna. Look at it. Look at it. This manna, just this goo on the ground. Is that, is, that what, is that really what Exodus was like for them? Or what, what Egypt was like for them? No. They were slaves. They were slaves. They were building brick in the heat hour after hour, getting beaten by Egyptians, controlled by Egyptians. This is not really what it looks like. But this funny thing happens sometimes when you get saved and you get set free, uh, you know, and you're justified and, and you're regenerate, and then you start to look back at the way that things used to be and you start to think, Oh, that was kind of good. I kind of missed that, you know? When that temptation begins to come in, and it comes in throughout really the story of your life as a Christian, it's never going to go away until glorification, right? It's the reality of sanctification for us is, is this, this temptation. And what God is doing through temptation, and God allows it, he does. He allows us to be tempted. He allowed his son, Jesus, to be tempted. What God is doing through temptation is he is trying to reorganize your palate so that you no longer have a taste for what Egypt used to have to offer, okay? And, and the way he does that sometimes is to give us what we want. If you look at the story in Numbers, uh, after they complain, you know what God does? He says, okay, here, take a bunch of quail. He sends all these quail, and they go out and they gorge themselves on quail. And you know what happens? They get sick. God, God, God causes a plague to come through the quail, and a ton of them die which is this beautiful picture of the fact that, hey, you know what? God might let you have that once in a while just so that you can remember how horrible, horrible your former master was. And that you don't have to go back to that anymore, right? God is trying to change your palate so that your tastes are for him and for righteousness and for holiness and not for the world anymore. <laughs> Heard of parents doing that with cigarettes, right? <laughs> Your kid steals a cigarette out of their purse, and they're like, here, now you got to smoke the whole pack, you know? Kid gets so sick, he never wants to smoke a cigarette again. I don't know if it really works or not, but um, 
I don't know, it's kind of that idea, anyways. Um, another way that God refines us, not only through, not only through uh, tribulation, but also through trials, okay? And these are the things that you actually can't really control and you're not even necessarily responsible for. Stuff happens to good people, bad people, and there are no good people, but stuff happens to everybody. It rains on the, the just and the unjust. I mean, trials are gonna come, and as Christians, we will go through trials. And this isn't what you get told when you're in junior high at camp, and the youth pastor says, just get saved and life will be fun. You don't get told that. You know, it's not, not really a true, hey, this is what sanctification looks like. You're gonna be tempted, you're gonna struggle, you're gonna have trials. They don't tell you that, okay? But the truth is, as a Christian, you struggle. And you have trials. Uh, look at the story. Uh, in chapters 12, chapter 12, uh, I mean, just one thing after another, struggle comes. Aaron and Miriam turn on Moses, his own brother and his own family turn on Moses against him and they start to question his authority. Trials. Then it, it comes time for them to send spies into the promised land. He says, okay, go and check out this promised land up here and figure it out. So Moses sends these 12. They go, they get there expecting there to just be, I don't know, a, a six-lane highway ready for them to walk over. And what do you know? There's some opposition there. There's all of these nations that are inhabited there. And they're not just uh, weak nations. They're strong nations. They're giants. They're strong men. And so these 12 spies are like, oh, this is more than we bargained for. We weren't ready to sacrifice this much to go into the promised land. So they go back and they go to Moses and, and, and only two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb, are like, yeah, let's do it. The other, tw- the other 10 are like, no way, we're not going in. I know God promised us, promised us this land, but we're not gonna do it because it costs too much, okay? Costs too much. So immediately see trials. Now Moses is having to, 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 to deal with this. And you know what God says? He says, you don't wanna go in? Okay, fine. You don't have to go in. It's an 11-day walk. We could be there two weeks. But if you don't want to go in, then cool. That's, that's fine. So they don't. The reality of our trials sometimes is that, that God is calling us to things that will cost more than we really are ready for. Okay? Uh, anyone have kids? Anyone realize how much that was going to cost? I don't just mean financially. I mean, it, it costs Costs your time, costs your heart, costs your affection, costs a lot of things. Um, the things in life that God calls us to are not just a cakewalk. They're hard things, and they're going to cost things. And that is a reality of life, right? But the trials go on. The hardship goes on. Korah and Dathan and Byram rise up against Moses and, and Aaron, and they question their leadership. They try to take over their leadership position. And then the Israelites are grumbling again and again and again. And time after time, they're grumbling for year after year as they're wandering in the wilderness because they refuse to go in and trust God. And, and, and one time when they're grumbling, God says, you know what? I'm going to send poisonous serpents to consume you. And he sends these serpents that come and they consume them. Moses, of course, steps in and advocates for them and holds up this bronze serpent on a pole and whoever looks at the pole is saved. But my point being is it's trial after trial after trial after trial and God is trying to get them into the promised land, but they have to go through all of this garbage. It's just, man, thing after thing, not to mention the fact they're living in the wilderness. They're camping for 40 years. Imagine that, no RV. Okay, you're camping for 40 years. Now, Another inevitable season that you'll face in sanctification. Am I being depressing? Is this, I'm sorry. It's just reality, okay? Not only are you gonna face uh, temptation, not only are you gonna face trials, you're also gonna face dry seasons. We have this story in Numbers chapter 20 where they're traveling, wandering through the desert, and what do you know? They don't have water. 
or thirsty. Okay, have any of you guys had a season like that as a Christian? <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of them. There's no water, okay? There's no water. It's a dry season. Now, the problem isn't that it's a dry season. The problem is what Moses does. If you guys know the story. What happens is they're grumbling again because there's no water. So Moses falls before the Lord and God says, just go speak to the rock like I told you to. Speak to the rock. So Moses says, okay. He goes. They're grumbling more. Moses throws a fit, <laughs> takes things into his own hand, grabs his staff and strikes the rock, disobeying God. Takes things into his own hands, which I think is a marvelous picture. Because in dry seasons, what do we typically do? We take things into our own hands. Well, if, if God's not going to speak to me, then I'm just going to figure it out. I'm just going to find a way. I'm just going to force it. And usually we turn to legalism. Well, maybe I just need to obey more. Maybe I just need to do more. Maybe I just need to serve more. Maybe, maybe then God will love me. It's like, no. No. Don't strike the rock again. But we have dry seasons. But this is how God sanctifies us, is it not? And then there's a, this probably the most common source of tribulation, which is not just trials and not just temptations and not just, uh, and not, not just uh, dry seasons, but our own failures and sin. This is the, the, the most common reason for us having to uh, go through tribulation is because of our own choices, is it not? I mean, how much pain in your life has been caused by yourself? Probably most of it. Decisions that she made. Uh, you want to get an example of that? They had to wander for 40 years. Why? Because they chose to. No one was making them wander. They didn't want to go in. God said, okay, okay, don't go in. If that's what you want. And because of that, their sanctification process was detoured like crazy. And all of us have experienced that. Man, God, you were going to use me and then I blew it. And then I made that decision or I did that thing. And now I'm, I'm way off course and I'm way out here. And, and, and oftentimes the biggest thing that God uses to be the fire in our life is our own stinking decisions. And it makes our sanctification process so much longer, but we all do it. We all do it. Now through all this, it's very important to understand that there is a difference. Listen, there's a difference between refinement and destruction. Okay, let me say that again because this is really cool. There is a difference between refinement and destruction. This is what John Piper says about this. He says, he, God, is a refiner's fire. And that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like a fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It melts down the bar of silver or gold. It separates out the impurities that ruin its value. It burns them up and leaves the silver and gold intact. He is like a refiner's fire. Do you see the distinction there? God's not just this wildfire, just destroying, destruction. Okay? God's not this incinerator that leaves nothing remaining. God is a refiner's fire, and a refiner is a craftsman. And a craftsman refines with great intentionality. God's not just burning your life to see you burn. God's not just allowing hardship into your life because he like, he's a sadist and he wants to see you struggle. He's a craftsman, and he wants to mold you, and he wants to purify you, he wants to refine you, and he will use every tool that he has to use, whether that's failures, or dry seasons, or temptations, or trials, or whatever it may be. God is a craftsman, and he uses the heat for his purposes. It's the same concept in forging steel, right? 
mean, you've, you've, you've all seen it on TV. You know, they stick the sword in, they get it super hot, they pull it out, and what do they do? They smack the thing with a hammer over and over and over again. And then what do they do? Stick it back in the fire. Stick it in the water, stick it back in the fire. Hammer it, hammer it, hammer it. I mean, this is the idea of refinement. It's a whole lot of hammering. It's a whole lot of heat. And it's a whole lot of struggle. And this is the reality of the Christian life. Why? Because God is trying to get you here. Not get you to earn getting here. He's trying to prepare you for here. For the promised land. For heaven. That's the point. When your body gets a fever, did you know that's a good thing? Your body's trying to kill something. Evil. Something bad. Something that could kill you. And so it heats up your body and and you're sitting in your bed thinking, oh, this fever, oh, this fever. And really the fever is your friend. The fever is helping you. Chemotherapy makes you sicker than a dog trying to kill cancer, right? But without that, this cancer will kill you, okay? This is is the idea. God is purging you of things that will kill you through refinement, through sanctification. The refining fire of sanctification is a focused and intentional process, not for your destruction, but for your eternal well-being. Does that make sense? Now, don't underestimate the severity of the importance of this process. Okay? It's important. It's extremely important. I find it interesting. This is one of the primary things is I was reading numbers and studying numbers. One of the interesting, most interesting things about this book is that after all of this, they don't get to go in. Doesn't that stink? I mean, they don't get to go. You're like, wait a minute, God refined them, right? I mean, wait a minute, they had serpents and all this stuff and all these problems and and complaining and the water and the quail and the getting sick and the plague and the wars and all this stuff and and yet still they don't get to go in? Okay, what is that a picture of for us? It's a picture of the fact that God puts your old man to death completely. That's the win for him in sanctification. It's not, oh, partially, I just need to put to death this Egyptian thinking, this worldly thinking. No, for God, the win in sanctification is, no, your old man needs to die completely so that you can be a new man, a new woman in Christ and live freely because there is no place for sin in heaven. No place. There's no place for it in heaven. God's ultimate goal is perfection for you and I. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. The reality is, guys, is just like they wouldn't change. God said, you don't want to go in? Fine, go wander. They didn't change. You think they changed in 40 years? No. Do you think your old man, Paul talks about your old man, not your dad, your old man, (laughs) do you think your old man will change? No. Um, Do you think that who you were before Christ would have changed apart from Christ? No. Man, can you imagine where you'd be right now if it weren't for Jesus? You think about that? Follow that trail. It's terrifying. You're, who you were apart from Christ would never have changed. And God can use nothing of that old person. He wants an entirely new person. That's why we're reborn. Okay? Piper goes on in his quote. He says, he says So we are impure by nature and by practice, but God will have no alloys in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yet he will have someone in heaven. He will have someone in heaven, he says. He will have a redeemed people. His banquet hall will be full, and therefore he must be a refiner's fire. Now listen, this is important. If he were only a forest fire, heaven would be empty. If he were only an incinerating fire, 
heaven would be empty. And if he were no fire at all, heaven would be empty. Think about that. Okay? It's imperative that God be a refiner because it's imperative to his own holiness, to his own nature. Now, what I can't help but marvel at is the strength of gold in this, in this scenario here. This idea that God, when, when you are regenerate, when you're born again, God has planted this treasure in your heart. And then his goal is to burn all the garbage out and just leave the treasure. I can't believe how resilient that gold is. You know what I mean? Because if that gold isn't there, you get burnt. There's, there's, no, there's nothing a refiner can do with a stack of wood other than it just burn. But yet gold can be put into 2,000 degrees of heat and come out still gold. It cannot be touched by fire. Isn't that incredible? What an amazing picture God gives us here of the fact that what he planted in you at salvation, this new birth, this thing that he did in you, cannot be burned by trials. Nothing and no one can take from you what God has planted in you. Nothing and no one can take it from you. No amount of fire, no amount of flame, no amount of trial can take what God did for you. It's amazing the resilience of this gold when you see it in people's heart. Now, as a pastor from time to time, I get to go and, 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 and view firsthand the most terrible moments in people's lives. People's lives, where they're, on, where they're on their deathbed or where they've just been told they have this or they've just been told they have that. And, and I've always been blown away every time I walk into either a hospital room or even just a friend, I've seen a friend that's a Christian. I've been blown away by the resilience of Christians. I mean, I walk into a room where a guy's literally diagnosed with cancer. He could die tomorrow, and he's happy, and he's witnessing to his nurse. What's going on there? The world can't touch the gold in that guy's heart. It can't be burned. This, today, I went to visit a gal in our church that is literally on her deathbed. She could pass any moment. Cancer, she's been fighting it forever. Um, and, and, and she loves Jesus, man. And I got to go out and I got to pray with her and I got to read her some sweet notes that some of the gals in this church wrote to her and, and I got to read her 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. It was, a, it was an amazing, heart-wrenching thing and her husband's crying and her family's all there and I'm looking into this woman's eyes and I'm telling her about what's coming up. She gets to go to heaven. And this is like the greatest news I get to tell her but yet it's so sad at the same time, right? And I'm telling her that, you know what I see in this woman's eyes? This whole thing can't touch her. I mean, she's shaking. She's hurting. She's, she's in pain. She could die at any moment. And, and it's not touching her. Yeah, sure, she's sad. She's worried about her husband. She doesn't care. Because God is burning away all that stuff and has burned away all that stuff to what I see laying on that bed is not a frail woman who can barely speak. I see a pile of gold that is left after all of the stuff has been burned out and gone. Man, good news, right? Good news. This morning I was running with a friend, and I heard terrible news. Um, when I was a kid, there was a, a couple that were youth pastors in my, my city. They were probably my age when I was a kid. And, um, and this freak accident, he fell and hit his head, and he died. And they had three kids, and they were young. They were my age. It'd be like, it'd be like my wife losing me at this age. Just heart-wrenching. 
you know, and this guy affected so many lives. He was his pastor, and we packed out the gym, and, and this is a lot of years ago, and I've seen his, his wife um, through the years just around Medford. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And, and she's, she's been on her own, being a single mom for really being patient, and finally God brings her a husband, you know, and they've been married for a year or two, and I'm just so happy for her. When I heard about that, I'm like, yay, she got a husband. She's been without a husband for so long, and her husband was an amazing man of God, and how, how could you ever replace that? But God did it. He gave her this, this new husband, and I hear the news this morning at 5.30 in the morning when I'm running with a friend that, that a couple days ago, he woke up, and literally, um, he fell, had some kind of a stroke. By the end of the day, he was dead. And I'm like, how do I keep running right now? I mean, I just, I'm like, I'm gut-wrenched for this woman. And then he says, but you know what's crazy? She's been posting on Facebook about God's faithfulness through this whole thing. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Doesn't make any sense at all. How does that happen? It happens through refinement. It happens because God planted gold in her heart at a point in life. And through losing her husband, God burned away a whole lot of things. And all that was left was gold. And now the whole world gets to see it, right? How cool is that? The story of being Christian is not always roses. But man, God uses everything, doesn't he? He is a refiner. Now the reason there is a distinction between fire and refinement is because the refinement has a craftsman. Okay? This is a really important part of sanctification. So sanctification is not, is not only regeneration, is not only tribulation, but it's also preservation. Because you see, there's someone at the helm here. God is working. God is doing something. In the book of Numbers, there's a couple more stories I want to bring to your attention. Uh, first of all, it's, it's, just, it's just worth noting that all throughout their grumbling and all throughout their, their, their trials and their struggles and their refusing to believe God and their refusing to go into the promised land, all throughout that, God is still providing for them, still being patient with them, still being faithful to them, still holding up his end of the bargain, not because of them, but because of his own nature. Okay, but not only that, but unbeknownst to them, they're, they travel into this place called Moab, and, and they're this huge horde of people, like hundreds of thousands of people, and they're a big people group. And this king is terrified of them. They're gonna come in, and they're gonna ransack our, our place and take us out. So, so he hires this man, this, this, this uh, diviner, whatever you wanna call him, named Balaam, okay? And we won't get into the whole story, but he hires Balaam to go into to pronounce cursing uh, over Israel, but the interesting thing happens is that when Balaam goes up to pronounce cursing over Israel, all that comes out of his mouth is blessing. It's like he can't control it. He's speaking blessing over Israel. And then it happens three times, and on the third time, he ends up prophesying this messianic prophecy about this king, okay, which is rad. But here's the point. The point is, is that while Israel's down here going through trials and struggling and complaining and having issues, God is up here protecting them and they don't even know it. God's working all of these things for them and they don't even get it. They don't even realize it. So this brings to the question, and this is on your handout, who is responsible for sanctification? And this is kind of a trick question. Who is responsible for sanctification? Well, firstly, God is. And we have to know that. Sanctification, it's not like God's like, oh, you're justified, now go get it right. God's like, no, you are mine, and I will work in you to will and to do good from beginning and to end. 
He is the one that sanctifies us. He is the one that is the craftsman. He is the one that is burning away the chaff. He is the one that is turning up the heat. He is the one responsible for all of that. He also is empowering us simultaneously to live as believers, okay? Uh, This is good. God calls his children to holiness and graciously gives what he commands. Say that again. I didn't write that. R.C. Sproul. God calls his children to holiness and graciously gives what he commands. He doesn't call us to holiness. He gives us the power to live holy. Okay? Now, this is good news for you and I because that means that we don't have to decide what we're planted in. It just means that we have to decide to grow there. That was great wisdom someone told me one time. He's like, hey, being a Christian, you don't decide where you're planted. God may stick you in that pot or that pot, but you just grow wherever you're planted. God's the one who's sanctifying us. God's the one who's deciding whether you're a mom of 10 kids or whether you're James Bond or whatever. I mean, God's deciding, deciding what pot you're planted in. You are just to grow in that, in, that, in that pot. You are just to grow there and be sanctified there. And God will sanctify me wherever and however he wants. But it's also more complex than that. Because yes, God is sanctifying me. But we also must remember that we are to sanctify ourselves as well. This is our calling as Christians. This is, this is a great quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, God's method of sanctification is neither uh, activism, which is self-reliant activity, or apathy, God-reliant passivity, but human effort dependent on God. So it's not for us as Christians to say, oh, God sanctify me. I'm gonna watch The Bachelor for 10 hours tonight. That'll melt your brain, Right? It's also not for us to say, like, I gotta sanctify myself because I'm, you know, it's all, it's all on me now, right? It's, it's, it's an if and. God is sanctifying us, but he also wants us to be intentional about our sanctification process, dependent on him. Second uh, Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay. Notice he says, since we have these promises, say, since we've been justified, we cleanse ourselves. Not to be justified, we cleanse ourselves. No, we've been justified, and now we cleanse ourselves. Paul says in Philippians 3.11, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, glorification. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on. I keep going. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Why? Because you've been justified. Because you've been purchased. Because you've been bought at a price. And now we get to live for Christ out of that. It's good news. So here's my last point. How do I know when I'm sanctified? You ever thought about that? I mean, as a young man, I look at older guys and I'm like, so is that, is that what it looks like? Is that, I didn't mean to point at anyone over here. Uh, is that, is that guy what it looks like to be single? Uh, is it, is, is this what it looks like? Is it that really spiritual pastor? Is it, is it this guy who was on the mission field or is it that guy who nobody even knows who he is? Or what does it look like to be sanctified? How do we know whether we've been sanctified? Well, Romans eight twenty nine says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to what? To be conformed. To be conformed to what? The image of his son. That is the point. That is what sanctification is doing. 
It is conforming you to the image of his son. So this is really cool. Back to refinement. Before technology and all the different ways they can purify gold, it used to be a really simple process. You would put gold into a pot or a pan, and you would heat it as hot as you possibly could. And as you were heating it, all of that stuff would start to come out, right? And float to the surface, and you wipe it away. And it floats to the surface, and you wipe it away. And you float to the surface, and you wipe it away. And do you know how you would know whether it was refined enough yet? As you're looking down, and you're wiping it away, you begin to see your reflection in the reflection of that gold. Isn't that cool? I stole that from Pastor Jeremy. <laughs> Can't take credit. That's so cool, because what is God doing in sanctification? He's refining us and refining us until he looks down and sees what? Himself. He says, that's what I'm shooting for. <laughs> Look at this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, the apostle John says, we shall be like him. We'll look like him. That's how we know when we're sanctified, because we will look and talk and act and be like our King Jesus. That is sanctification. Now, how does that change anything for us? How does the book of Numbers, how does this idea of sanctification, how does it, you walk out the door, okay, that was some theology, whatever. How does it change or affect anything? Well, I'll tell you, it breathes worth into the everyday of your life. Because what it means is that everything that you do, everything that you fail at, everything that you suck at, everything that you're good at, everything, whatever, all of it is for God to refine you with. So there's value in everything. I'm sitting there a couple nights ago thinking about the sermon and thinking about sanctification. And um, my kids, when they eat dinner, it's like a bomb went off. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I'll clean the entire kitchen and all the floors, and then my, I put my one-year-old in his high seat, and he's just like throwing food, and it's on the walls, and it's everywhere, and it's like an hour and a half process just to clean everything, and I'm, I really like clean houses, so I'm cleaning it all up, and it's like the third time that day, my poor wife does it a million more times than I do, and, and, and I'm thinking to myself, how is there worth in this? Okay? How is there value? And, and here's where my mind goes first. Well, I love my kids. Yeah, but that's just not doing it for me right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like having a clean house. Not this much. Okay. And then my mind goes, well, I just want to serve my wife. No, I do, but this is ridiculous. How do I find, how do I breathe worth into this thing that I'm doing again and again and again and again? How do you breathe worth into your job when you hate it? When you go and your boss is a jerk and it's a day after day and it's a grind and it's a grind or you, your marriage is hard, you, you know, your kids won't talk to you or your friendships that are tense and life is just monotonous or it's hard or it's a struggle. How do you breathe life into that? You say, this is refinement because I'm going here and this is what's gonna get me there. This is what's gonna prepare me for eternal enjoyment of God this refiner who's shaping me and molding me intentionally. God intentionally repurposes and redirects every degree of heat in your life with intentionality. He's not gonna burn you up like a forest fire, right? He's gonna direct that heat to sanctify you, to make you into the likeness of his son so that you can for all of eternity enjoy at the feet of God his eternal glory forever. That's good news. That is the complexity of salvation. God didn't just justify you. He didn't just give you a new birth. He's not just sanctifying you. 
He's also sending you to heaven. There is complexity and dimensionality to salvation that is so beautiful. So beautiful. So may numbers always be a reminder of that. The book of sanctification. God is working. So if you feel like you're in the wilderness right now, don't worry. Don't worry. God's just putting to death the old man. He's just burning up that stuff that he doesn't want in your life because it'll kill you. He's trying to get rid of Egypt in your heart. He's trying to reorganize your palate. Amen? Cool. Let's all stand, guys. Refiner's fire My heart's one desire Is to be holy Set apart for you, my maker ready to do your will. God, we thank you so much that you are a refiner. And Lord, I pray that tomorrow and tonight as we go home and back to our lives that we would see your hands working in everything that we do. Oh God, you are so good to us. And your salvation story uh, is so complex. And God, as we continue to trek through the Bible, we just want to learn more about all that you've done for us so that we might live for you in a way that pleases your heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next week, the entire group of people dies off. A whole new generation comes, and Deuteronomy is the book written to them. So come back next week, and we'll get into the next book.